Hey guys, this is Hunter Levine, and thanks for listening to The Captain's Collective. Special shout out to everybody who's been sharing the podcast and sending us feedback. We really appreciate it. It helps us a ton with what we're doing. In today's episode, my dad and I sit down with Nat Raglan, who was one of the pioneering anglers in the Keys in the 60s and 70s, and really just a legend among legends. And in this conversation, we get a chance to talk about some of the innovation that was happening in fishing at that time, what life was like in the Keys during the 70s, and how Flip Pallet gave him his nickname, The Senator. We hope you guys enjoy. These are some great stories. This is The Captain's Collective. Success is a gift. Excellence is the only thing to strive for. Uh, he, 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 he tried to eat it. He tried to eat it. Hit him, hit him, hit him, hit him. He got him. He's on it. Uh, two butt caps off the rods, filled them with tequila. We took a shot and out we went. There, there ain't no getting into it after that. It's you're, you're hooked. It's a bad habit. And all the time, flips the he's standing there ready to go for a tarpon. Anytime he says, "You talk so much, you're like a senator." Well, hey, thanks for being on the podcast. It's been fun so far just to sit down and to talk with you about fishing. And a few moments ago, we were talking about um, how you first entered into guiding down in the Keys in the 60s and 70s. Was it 60s? or? Well, I, I used to fish all up and down the, uh, the Keys in the 60s, but uh, I was an angler in those days. I wasn't a guide. I became a guide in 61, 71 and uh, I stayed in it till uh, 04, 2004. So that's what, 33 years? Is that what you said? 33, 33 wow. years, yeah. And you, like were, you were telling us uh, you were there when they really first came well, out with that Hughes Bone Fisher. Uh, well, the Hughes Bone Fisher was, was uh, that was supposed to be the kind of the state of the art in those days. Uh, it, it got supplemented or, or uh, as time went on, there was a lot of other boats that were developed that seemed to do better things the uh steve huff i don't know i'm sure you've heard of uh steve uh was quite an innovative uh, person he ran a, a, a bone fisher for quite some time and then he found that he needed something else to do and so he was driving up the road one day and i, I guess it was in the lower Key Largo or something, and it was a, a hull laying on the side of the road. It was just, just had been discarded. And he got to looking at it, and he said, ah, oh, you know, that hull looks really adaptable. The, the top of the, uh, the cap was, uh, was not a bonefish boat. So he dickered around with the guy and bought it for $50. And he took it back, cut a skill saw, and cut the whole top of it off. I just used the hull, reinforced it, built hatches in it, built a thing, and that was the first sidewinder. And uh, uh, he ran that for quite some time, and then I had been a good friend of Steve's and had seen it many times and fished out of it, and it was a wonderful riding boat. Oh, it was just a wonderful boat. And uh, so 
that, that kind of got into that. Uh, the the graphite boats did come along way after that, way after that. And uh, but the but the Hughes and uh, there was a, a a boat called a Gediman boat. Uh, they, they were used quite a, extensively in uh, Almorada, and uh, they were wood boats. They were wood boats. But the the Hughes Bone Fisher was the first class uh, flats guide, flats boat. And uh, I guess the only claim to fame was the fact that Bob Hughes uh, was the first uh, manufacturer or anything that started the towers, the, the polling towers. Uh, Bill Curtis, who was a, a uh, at that time was a very famous uh, bonefish guide in Lower Biscayne Bay, said we need something to stand on back there. So he and and uh, Bob Hughes got together and they designed this polling tower to go on the stern of the boat. And uh, so Bob had whoever was making the boat the towers for him said I want. I want four. He was a uh, he his his dealership uh, was an OMC dealer, and uh, he said I want four towers for OMCs and two for Mercury's. So one day Bob happened to be happened to run into him in the Ferro Blanco uh, uh, Marina. Uh, he he was staying there, and he had come down. He used to have fish out of Big Pine Key. Yeah, fun fish, and he had this uh, bone fissure with a tower on the back of it. He said, "Now nah, come on, he's out here and and uh, and see what I got here. See if you like that thing." Well, this was on the he was on the trailer, so I looked at it. Uh -huh. And in those days, we used to pull the boat from the bow. Everybody pulled from the bow. We first pushed the boat stern first, and uh, so. I I got up in the trailer and and got up in the boat and stood up on the thing. Well, it was about fifteen feet tall. I thought, you know, seemed like it was that high. I said, "Man, I want one of these things." So Bob says, "Well, I had just happened to have one." He says, "So I was as as best I can remember. I was the first guide in the Keys in the Keys to have a polling tower, and." Uh, then it was Katie barred the door. Everybody got him after that. Yeah. And you were saying back in the Keys earlier today, there's only really a handful of guys who were guiding down there. A lot of the attention was more northern than that. Well, the, the, the supposed fishing capital of the world was in Alamorada. And most all the anglers and everybody that was fishing, and all the publicity was coming from, was going into the Alamorada area. And the lower Keys... We were just kind of Johnny Come Lately's, you know. We had some of the best fishing you ever saw, and there was nobody there but us. No, nobody, nobody, none of the locals uh, that that weren't guides never fished uh, where we were fishing. All the flats were open. I mean, you, it was lonely. You'd go to Marquesas, and if you saw another boat, you said, "Man, I'm glad somebody else is out here with me." And uh, I was talking to one of the, my friends just the other day. He said he had made a trip to Marquesas and counted 32 boats there. 
That's crazy. <laughs> and 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 who all was down there at that time? That that network. Who was all kind of hanging out? In in the lower keys. Uh, well, Harry Snow Jr. and Cal Cochran, uh, Joe Saladino, uh, Roy Lowe. He had a brother that was also a guy. Uh, these were just in the marathon people. I, I can't even remember all the ones in Alamorada. Uh, Albright and Jack Brothers and and uh, <clears throat> some of the old names, the really big names in, in, uh, in uh, flat fishing uh, ran out of Alamorada. And what was that community like? What were the relationships like? Because it sounds like in a really innovative time, and you mentioned that with the pooling platforms, but a time well, when people were learning uh, with each uh, other. And- Alamorada <clears throat> was, was more fishing-oriented as far as the motels and eateries, and, and uh, they supported their guides uh, quite heavily. Because there were so few of us in a marathon, we more of us became a, a really a... A kind of a, of a town, you know. I mean, uh, it wasn't oriented towards uh, uh, sports fishing. Uh, there was a lot of sports fishing going on there, offshore as well as as onshore, but it didn't have the publicity that Almarad did. And and you guys were talking earlier about some of the tackle you guys would use. Well, the the the, the biggest advance that ever occurred in flats fishing with polar ride glasses. Uh, everybody had been f- fishing uh, prior to polar ride glasses. Uh, uh, they were just, they didn't have, they didn't have the visibility that, that polar ride glasses gave everybody. Consequently, uh, uh, most of the guides in those days depended on spots. They said, watch that spot and sometime a fish will come in there they they didn't they couldn't see the fish come to the to that spot but they usually uh, they anchored over a white area or something and then you would see a shadow come across it and say, well there he is and like say you cast right to that spot and you might have your angler say okay make 15 shots at that spot just so that you know where that's and when i tell you to throw throw in that spot and that's the way we, we used to fish in those days. But polarized glasses said, hey, here he comes, you know, at 3 o'clock at 60 feet, you know. Uh, we had a whole new thing. Uh, the first polarized glasses I used were, were tanker glasses that were made during World War II that uh, they used to issue to the tankers in, in uh, North Africa. And we used to buy them at the Army Navy uh, Army Navy uh, salvage stores for ten cents a piece. Uh, I used to buy, I used to buy them by, in lots of twenty, okay, and, and uh, because they, they didn't hold together very good and everything, and they gave out after a while. But uh, the the first ones I, I, in fact, you know, somewhere in my cigarette, I think I still got a, one of those things left, you know. Uh, they were all adjustable ear earpieces and everything, and uh, they were just a. You see copies of them out on the on the around now. Uh, for sixty bucks, <laughs> but in those days they were ten cents a piece. And when you think back to that time, just back in the sixties and seventies in the Keys, 
and you have some of the big names that we talk about today and think about today. Everyone's down there networking and helping each other out. And I mean, what, what do you miss the most about those days? Well, I, there was, there was always a certain amount of camaraderie that, that, that you first off developed with your clientele, uh, among the guides, uh, there, there were there were all kinds of, of relationships. Some were good, some were not so good, some were casual, some were deep. Uh, as far as as I know, I I've got friends right to this day uh, that are some of them are still in the business, some of them are retired, and regretfully some of them are gone. <laughs> And uh, when you when you look at kind of how those relationships formed and how they functioned, was there a lot of mentoring going on? I know you mentioned some guys in the Miami Fishing Club investing oh, in you. Oh, well, in the Fishing Club, it was we were all mentors. Uh, uh, the the, uh, the ones that the new members that came in the club were always taken over by some of the older members and taught how to how to tie the knots, uh, where to go if they had their own boat or if invited it to go with you and learn how to how to fish uh the way we were fishing in those days you know uh i remember we used to uh, uh do a lot of deep jigging offshore with 10 pound test line and uh spinning reels that were I, they would carry uh quite a lot of line it wasn't necessarily uh that we needed that much line but because the spools, spools uh, needed the uh, diameter increased, so, so the re retrieve rate was faster. And uh, we used to put on demonstrations about uh, taking a five-pound block of lead and trying to lift it off the ground with a five, with a ten-pound test line. And these boys would. Uh, it's very hard to lift five pounds off the line with, with a ten-pound uh, uh, line test. Uh, uh, I don't know whether you've ever tried it yourself, but but if you if you really think about it, take a take a eight foot rod or a, a seven and a half foot rod and try to lift five pounds off the ground ground with it. Uh, it's it's a it's very difficult. Uh, that's why they say, well, well, you know, you catch 50, 50, 60 pound fish with ten pound test line. Oh uh, yeah, but. You don't do it right away. <laughs> you let him, let him tire out a white. Now, when you were guiding, when you went down and you started guiding, did you stay involved with the Miami Fish Club? I did uh, as, as a kind of a member. I, I didn't usually go to any of their functions or anything. I stayed in contact with some of the people that were there. Uh, but basically, I quit fishing that way. Uh, the Sports Fishing Club... <clears throat> it was pretty much oriented to the offshore stuff, uh, the reef fishing and everything. Uh, there was a lot of us did uh, the flats work too, but uh, that was kind of a peripheral. They did, you know, it, that wasn't the, the the big orient in those days. Uh, I guess the the the, the one that <laughs> I always called him uh, part fish uh, was Norman Duncan. Uh, uh, I don't know, Norman's still in Miami. I don't think he fishes much anymore, but uh, he used to take a species of fish. It might could have been anything. 
say, I'm going to learn how to catch that fish. And he would concentrate all his fishing effort on that one fish, uh, whatever species it might happen to be. One day it was a kingfish, one day it was a permit, one day it was a bonefish, one day it was a sailfish. And when he learned how to catch it, he went on to the next one. And uh, I remember when the, nobody had caught any permit prior to a couple of accidents. Uh, Chuck Walton had caught a permit fishing out of Marathon, of, of all places, uh, and set a record on, on fly fishing in those days. And uh, Norman says, I'm going to learn how to catch a permit on fly. And... Uh, Everywhere he went, he, he was rigged for the fly rod and, a, and what he called the permit fly. He, he didn't show it to anybody, but one day he caught two in the same day. Gave up permit fishing, didn't do it anymore. He said, I know how to do it now. Now that's something, you caught a big permit, didn't you? I, I caught a big permit, but I caught him on, on a, actually on a bait casting rod. Uh, we were fishing... Uh, a fellow that had an Ambassador 6000 uh, M, uh, reel. We were fishing in the Marquesas, and uh, I had uh, I had a friend of mine who I had known from high school was fishing with us that day, and this other fella, and uh, we were pulling an area in the Marquesas where you'd see a lot of tarpon and a lot of permit. And I said, okay, uh, in those days, crabs were very hard to come by. Uh, you had to catch them yourself. Uh, you couldn't go to the tackle store and buy them. You had to, you had to get them yourself. And uh, uh, my, my high school chum had never caught a tarpon. So I said, well, I'm going to rig you with a, a big uh, crab and uh, for the tarpon size. And what little I had was a... So this other fellow, he wanted to use the bait casting rod. Well, I needed a little weight there. I couldn't just, so I, I gave him a little bigger crab than I would normally use. We were pulling down the flat, and here come a fish. And I said, okay, you tarpon man, get up there, and here he comes, you know. So he gets up and makes the cast. Well, he was closer to the fish when he, before he cast, okay. <laughs> so... In the meantime, the fish got up close enough to recognize it was a really large permit. So I said to the permit guy, I said, cast to the permit, you know. So he made a cast, and he missed him just almost as far as the tarpon man had missed him. Well, they both cranked in real quick, and uh, the permit man cast. The fish came right over, ate the crime. Seventy minutes later, we got a world tackle, all tackle world record permit on, on 15-pound test line. It's still a record. Still a 20-pound record. And, wow. and what did that fish weigh? 50 pounds, 8 ounces. Wow. And that was in the 70s, you said? That was in, uh, that was just before I guided. I, well, not just, I had already became a guide, but it was before I had moved to the Keys. And I already had my license and everything. That was in the summer of 71. No, 72. 70. 1970. Very good. I know a big part of your story was somebody who kind of said, you, you shared this earlier and I'd love for you to share it again so we could have it on the podcast, but somebody who took you when you were working in the movie industry 
and you weren't very happy and you were in a car and a guide that you had fished with that day kind of said, Hey, would you be interested in doing this? I got a second boat. Could you kind of share that story about how you got involved down there? Oh, and well, I, I, at, at the end of the fishing club there, my friend Bob Stearns, <clears throat> he said, come on, go, go with me fishing. He said, we're going down the Keys and fish with this uh, captain in, uh, in Marathon. And then we're going to go, we were going to go on down and fish the second day in, in Key West. So uh, we got up the next morning and drove down to Key West and went fishing with this, this guide. He was just kind of going along for the publicity. And Bob was writing for the magazines in those days. So he was wanting to get a story about catching baby tarpon under the mangroves with a fly rod. So uh, Captain Cal, who was with us that day, he said, well, I know some spots where we can go do that with. So they, they wanted me to do the casting. Bob was going to take the pictures, and Cal was going to kind of like be the guide. So he took us down, and we caught three or four little baby tarpon under the flies with a fly rod. And uh, that was that was my first article that got written up and published in, the, in Saltwater Sportsman or something like that. And uh, Bob wrote it and uh, had me pictures of casting and a little tarpon and everything. In the meantime, on the second day, we had invited Cal to come on down and fish with us to go to Key West. So he went, went down, we fished Key West, and we fished Permit and, and Tarpon, and I forget we've caught anything that day. And on the way back, uh, Cal said to me, he said, uh, would you be interested in come on a ride with me and in in, in back to Marathon in my car? So on the way back, he proposed that I come down and, and move to Marathon and run his second boat for him. And that's how I actually got into, I, I was going to hang my shingle out and my first shingle was going to be in Key West. I was going to run from Key West. And he kind of talked me out of it and, and started in Marathon. And that's one of the things when we were talking with Jimmy Long and Homosassa and he talked about the way that you mentored him and helped him and then I, we talk to you and hear about these guys in the Miami Fish Club and Cal and different people who invested into you. And I'm sure the, the lineage goes on and on and on. But when you think about mentoring in the fishing community, what makes somebody a great mentor? Well, uh, you got to like people, one thing. And uh, my my feeling about it was that... that some of the up-and-coming guides who wanted to be guides or were, were just fishermen were doing it the wrong way or, or getting into it in, a, in, a, in a, a way that wasn't very productive. So I decided that, uh, especially it, when I was in the fishing club, that used to be my job. I used to take all the, all the young, new uh, aspirant members uh, with me on my boat, and I would show them as much as I knew in those days. And uh, uh, the equipment was was just then starting to get really, really good. Uh, part of that time, there had been a, a lot of a lot of fly fishing, and we hadn't really talked about fly fishing yet. But but the fly fishing business was just starting to to orient towards the saltwater end of it. Before it had all been freshwater, 
trout being a, and a certain amount of salmon, but <clears throat> all the equipment being manufactured and put out, Orvis being one, uh, were put out some very fine rods and everything, but they were oriented towards uh, saltwater, uh, freshwater fishing. And, and all of us guides that were in, starting to, to orient or, or, or start to target tar, big tarpon said, we need equipment that can land one of these things. We can hook him on a, on a three-weight rod, but you can't land him. And so uh, Leon Martus, who was then uh, owner of uh, Scientific Angler, uh, who was also a good friend of Lefty Craze. And uh, Lefty and, and Leon got together and put their heads together, and they came out with a whole series of oriented, saltwater-oriented uh, fly rods. And I remember one day, uh, Bob Stearns and I went over. Bob, uh, uh, Lefty was then uh, one of the directors of the Metropolitan Fishing Tournament, and they had offices at the uh, Miami Herald, which was on the Biscayne Bay. And uh, we went over to talk to him one day, and he said, I just got a whole load of rods in from Leon, uh, from Scientific Angler. He says, I haven't tried them all. He says, let's go out and throw them out. So we went out on the, on the back thing of the Miami Herald thing, and we were testing these rods. <laughs> and I thought, and I had already built my own fly rod, and I was, I was doing pretty good with it. Anyway, Lefty was a, a tremendous caster. I mean, he was, and uh, he would pick up a rod and he'd cast it a few times, and uh, he, he wouldn't wouldn't try to get distance. He would just he would just you know get the the head of the line off, and work it a few times. And then he'd turn to Bob and says, "Well, I think we need to take about two inches off the end of this rod." You know, well, I had no idea what they were talking about, so. Finally, I said, Lefty, I said, you want to try my rod? He says, I, I said, I built this rod myself. I've been catching all these fish with it. He says, this is my rod. He says, yeah, sorry. So he got up my rod, and he, he cast it a few times. He said, Nat, he said, that's the worst rod I have ever seen in my life. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so anyway, then, then we, uh, we started getting the really good equipment in. And, and in, in those days, there were only two reels. I mean, uh, the Fenor wedding cake reel and the uh, scientific, I mean, uh, the salt, uh, uh, Seamasters. Uh, uh, the guy that developed the wedding cakes, according to the story goes, it was uh, Gar Wood, who was a race, car, a race boat driver, had got with Fenor and stood these were made both in the States before the Japanese bought Fenor out. Uh, and uh, the Seamaster reels were made there in Carl Gables. And uh, uh, in those days, they were really tough. I mean, you get a Seamaster, man, that was, that was, you were top line. And we used to save for days getting a Seamaster because they cost 50 bucks a piece. <laughs> and, uh, you only had to get one. I mean, you know, in fact, I think I got my first Seamaster. I bought it secondhand. And uh, and I didn't tell my wife for a couple of years I had one. <laughs> you had it hidden, hidden in somebody else's garage and 
all that or you're just trying to hide it away from her oh no no she was she's not fish fish oriented uh, i i don't know whether that's a, a good or a plus but uh, she did she she raised the kids i did the fishing <laughs> and, and all and so all the saltwater fly fishing is picking up and you're doing a lot in the homosassa area and no, I've heard i hadn't got to, i hadn't got to homosassa yet i i was not one of the first ones to go to homosassa first one to go to homosassa was was a uh, the guy uh from clearwater and uh he and his boys uh used to go there every tarpon season, and they were plug fishermen. They used to fish uh, bait casting reels and plugs, and that was Harold LeMaster who had invented the mirror lure uh, line reel, uh, lures. And uh, he lived in Clearwater, and my friend, I keep mentioning Bob Stearns, uh, Bob lived in Largo, Florida, which was a subsidiary of, of Clearwater, and he and I, Bob and I, went to clear, uh, went to Homestead for the first time in about 50, 55, I guess. Uh, the first time I fished uh, Homestead was in 55. And uh, we, we just went down out of school. We were both going to school at Florida State at that time. And uh, uh, he said, my friend... Harold Master said, he said, there's some big tarpon here in Homosassa. Well, we went down there where there was, the tarpon was gone in those days. They, they had been there and had migrated out. We didn't do any good. We caught some redfish and things. But uh, I remember him saying, this is the place to be. And in the late, I guess it was the early, early 70s or late 60s, uh, Steve Huff had heard the same story I had heard about the big tarpon at Homosassa. And he had an angler who uh, used to come down. He, he was a member of the New York Stock Exchange and, and uh, quite affluent. And he said, let's go over to Homosassa and fish one time. Let's, you know, so all of us who were then very hard into the tarpon season and, and marathon, we didn't have time to go over to Omasat and go fishing. So Steve and Tom Evans uh, came over uh, blind, just picked up, trailered over here. They didn't know, know any know anybody or anybody. And uh, they just went down and started fishing Homosassa. Uh, run out the river and kind of went on down to the south at Chattawicka Point and on down into the White Sands and everything. And they started finding these things down there. And I remember talking to Tom Evans uh, years later. And I don't know, Steve was, was never one to, uh, to beat his drum. He, if you ask him how he did it, he says, oh, we caught a couple. Uh, he might have jumped 15, but he caught a couple. <laughs> he he never, never bragged about it. But he said... Uh, Tom said, well, he said, I remember one morning we went out of Homosassa. He went down below, and he said, at 10 o'clock, I had landed my seventh big tarpon on fly. Wow. And he said, I was dead. He said, I was a basket case. 
He said, come on, Steve, let's go home. He, Steve says, you can't go. He says, There's, he says, I'm counting 20 schools around us within sight right now. 20 schools. They left. That, that, that was how good it was when it was really good. Uh, that was in about 70, 69 or 70. 70 probably. My first trip to the Keys was in 75. I mean, to the home assassin was to 75. And how did you end up getting more involved there as it things well, got unwound? I had a, I had a, one of my first big tarpon anglers who was, uh, I fished while I was still uh, partners with this other guide, was a, a law uh, attorney. Uh, he he uh, was a law professor. He, he uh, be, be actually taught law at, at uh, uh, one of the North Carolina universities, either Chapel Hill or the other one. I don't know. Anyway, <clears throat> he had come down and uh, fished with another guide at Homosassa the year before, and he kept after me. He says, you got to go to the Homosassa. you got to come with, I want you to come over and guide me in Homosassa. So kind of reluctantly, I said, oh, okay, because I didn't have any clientele set up to fish Homosassa other than him, and I wasn't going to come for just a week or so. So uh, we came over to Homosassa, and I got into the tarpon business, and I saw this is a really great uh, thing here, you know. And uh, so I started getting more into clientele, oriented towards making a, a the, the tarpon run time at Homosassa. And so from 75, I, I fished Homosassa 13 or 14 years in a row. We used to come always the first week in the uh, first, uh, first almost full week of May and stayed the full uh, just after Labor Day, I mean just after Memorial Day. I had to get back to the Keys because I was involved in a lot of the tournaments in those Keys, which happened in June, so I couldn't stay uh, past about uh, Memorial Day. And uh, then in those days, there was it was, it was five or six uh, of the Keys guides that were coming to Homosassa. Uh, there they were really oriented to, to that kind of thing. Steve was one, and uh, uh, Lee Baker was one, uh, uh, Dale Perez, and 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 later on, even Harry came over. Harry Spear came over, uh, but that was in later. That was later on, and uh, it was it was a big happening. I used to remember. I thought, oh, I'm glad I'm going to Homosassa, man. I couldn't only get out of town fast enough. And then I, but when I get over here, after about four weeks of pulling for those suckers, I'd say, man, I've got to get back the keys so we can stake out again, you know. <laughs> That's interesting that, you know, you mentioned that the, your tarpon run in the keys started a little earlier than Homosassa. The, the, the tarpon run in the keys started usually, we started really tor uh, targeting them in, in May, March. And then y'all staked in the Keys, but when you went to Homosassa, you uh, you actually polled. That's kind of more the traditional way of doing it in Homosassa. Well, the, point. the original way 
uh, and I remember this is this is the first <coughs> uh, electric motors were just starting to take take whack uh, because of the sea conditions in the afternoon at Homosassi. You really need electric motors if you're pulling for them. Uh, most of the, our, our orientation in those days, we would usually go in the mornings and fish black rock, which is naturally you don't see them quite as, you see them visually on the roll on the surface, but you don't really see them down in the water that much. At about 10 o'clock in the morning, in those days, in the early days, a lot of the black rock fish would get up and they would start going south. And well, in those days there was a rack, uh, one of the old uh, net racks, uh, and and that's where we used to, all of us would, about 10 o'clock, we'd all start orienting towards the rack. Well, the water got shallower there, and you could actually start to see the schools coming at you. Now, they weren't fast moving in those days. They were just kind of swimming along, and see one roll here, one roll there. And they were, you could you could pole with them. I mean, you could stay with them if, if you, you, they weren't they weren't fast movers. You'd have fast movers, but most of them were just kind of slow coming on down. Well, you would position your boat and get your shots out. And uh, then later on, as the sun got up big, higher and everything, we'd go down to the white sands off of, between there and uh, off of Pine Island. And there was a track these things used to hack. Uh, it, it wasn't a, a close track, it was a wide track. So you had to move your boat in and out, in and out, in and out to stay with us. You might see a school come by, you know, 100 yards inside of you, and you might see a school, the same thing, 100 yards outside of you. So you had to pull for them to, to get your shots. Well, naturally, you say it's easier to see them on the white sands than it is anywhere else. And so a lot of, most all of the guides, not everybody, but most all of the guides would wind up off in the white sands in the afternoons. And uh, uh, being the fact that the lion's share of the fish had left Black Rock by the afternoons, nobody fished much fish the Black Rock country in the afternoons. So... Uh, The homosassive people that were actually got into the home into the uh, into the tarpon season was Jimmy's uh, uncle, uh, Alex Williams, and Alex <clears throat> was an old old time uh, guide in a, in a, in homosassa, and uh, he and his brother had been on on the river for forty years then. Well, Alex was smart enough that he saw that there was quite a quite a business to be had fishing for tarpon. Usually, uh, they were all trout and redfish people, uh, you know, fishing in in big boats and spinning tackle and everything. Well, Alex said, "Man, this is the best thing that ever happened to Omaha's is the the publicity of the people coming to to fish big tarpon and fly." So he developed a boat, a flats boat. In fact, I think he was using a Maverick in those days. Uh, and uh, he started uh, guiding parties and things. 
Well, I always looked up to Alex. I, you know, I said, you've been here long, a lot longer than I have. And I said, I said, where are they? He said, you know more about it now than I do. He says, I never fished these things until two years ago. So anyway, as time went on, <clears throat> he introduced me to some of the other, other uh, homeless Athlete people. There wasn't very many fishing, and it, you know, it was doing. Jimmy came along. Jimmy Long came along. Uh, I I don't remember exactly the, the time, but I remember he he ran out of the old Trade Winds uh, Motel area with Alex, and and Alex introduced me to this is my nephew Jimmy Long. Uh, he's just getting into business, and uh, and uh, if you can show him any pointers, you know, do it. So I said, come on up to the room. I, you know, we're, well, in those days, uh, as soon as I hit on with Sats, I took all the feathers out of that I used to bring up and put them out on the kitchen table. And we tie flies that we, when we weren't fishing, we were tying flies. And we had all kinds of different flies. And so I took Jimmy. I said, look, this is the way you do it. This is the way you tie a fly. And I said, this is the way, we, that's the way I rig them. I said, you, there's a whole bunch of ways to rig flies. But I said, this is the way I rig them. Uh, you, you can either use it or use it, use somebody else's. I don't, I don't care. But this is the way I do it. And so Jimmy, he was right there. He, he, was, he wanted to do it. And uh, I get, you know, he was always there in the afternoons when we'd come in. I, I'd come up the room, we'd all have a beer or, or healing beaker, and we <laughs> used to call in those days. And, uh, he didn't. He didn't have those things, but I. I used to have healing beakers. Okay. <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, Jimmy, he was right there, you know, and we'd talk on the radio, and you know, uh, and we fished a few times. I, I, I uh, you know, have a day off. We have a cancellation or something like that. And Jimmy would. I'd say, "Come on, Jimmy, let's go down and go down the river and." You know, and we caught some fish. We we hooked some fish. Let me ask you: uh, How did they feel? How what was that sentiment of the local guides when poor the Keys guys showed poor. up? You know, about the only time, the only friends we had was Alex Williams and his son Bruce, and uh, uh, there was another boy. Uh, uh, Hampton, uh, I can't remember his first name, and uh, Hammer Locklear. Uh, Hammer wasn't a guide when I first started. He was he was just a dock hand at at McRae's, and uh, uh, he finally got in, hung out his shingle. I used to talk more to his father, Eustace Jack Locklear. Uh, Eustace was a commercial fisherman for all intent purposes, and uh, we used to eat it at, at, at a, one of the old, old breakfast nooks in in Homosassa in those days. It was called Smitty's, and uh, uh, my roommate, who was a guide from uh, my uh, from Marathon, and a good friend of mine, uh, Mike Hewlett. Uh, we used to eat breakfast there, and we and Eustace used to eat. I thought, well, well, we were all sat around the table and talk fish. And uh, Eustace said, "Well, I know they were going to be here. They're going to be there. They never were, but that he always 
told us where we were supposed to go. And uh, so uh, m most of the most of the the Almorada Guides Association, with the exception of Alex and Jimmy, and uh, uh, after in later years, uh, 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 Hammer and uh, this uh, Hampton boy, uh, they all adapted the way we were fishing, uh, but the the. the the old time guides in Homestead, they 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 didn't think we were doing the right thing. Now, I've heard you called the senator. How did you get that nickname? Well, when I the first uh, Gold Cup tarpon tournament I fished in the Keys, and that was in uh, I gotta say it was in the late seventies or something. Uh, you got you got to remember and that in in those days Almorada was a closed shop. Uh, you just didn't come in and hang out your shingle. Uh, you just you had to uh, pretty much you know uh, give your firstborn son to the to the guides association or daughter as the case may be. Uh, and and, and in, in, anyway. Uh, uh, they had had some bad uh, situations where an angler would come in and, and uh, make application to one of the tournaments. And the whole idea was that the tournaments were designed to, to promote the guides of Alamorada. Well, some of the anglers said, I want, I want my guide I'm, I'm not going to hire one of the Alamara guys. Well, they even, some of the times they even wrote it into the bylaws that they had to, had to be so many, uh, so long in the keys. And uh, Anyway, the first, first break in the whole system was when this Steve Huff I mentioned before and his angler Tom, uh, they decided to fish the Gold Cup. So he came up and kind of broke the broke, broke the first man on the sidewalk, so to speak. And uh, so the next year, uh, one of my old fishing club members, I'm sure you've heard of him, Flip Pallet. Uh, Flip said, Nat, would you guide me in the Gold Cup? And I said, well, I, I'm not really oriented to to uh, fish the Alamorada country, uh, he said, "Well, I know a lot of the spots and everything." And and he was a he was a big Alamorada uh, angler, not as a as a uh, guide, but as, as an angler. And he said, "I can I can show you some of the spots and everything." Well, I knew a lot of the spots in the in the Lower Keys, and, and there wasn't that far a run. So I said, "Sure, I'll do it if if the, if the Alamorada people will let me." So. He made application and got accepted. He said, my guide's going to be Nat Ragland. Well, there was, was a big stink going on. And some of the some of the Almorada guides were uh, kind of looked down on you when you were Because I remember one of the old timers, uh, uh, Jack Brothers, who was uh, one of the old time Almorada guides, 
on the kickoff banquet, he came up to me and he said, Nat, he said, I'm really glad to hear you come up here. He said, it's really a pleasure to have some new new, new faces. Well, he was he was as friendly as any of any Almer guys. It took about six years before they all start talking to you. <laughs> anyway, uh, Flip and I went out, and in those days we did a lot of stakeout spots. Well, <clears throat> the year that we did the first Gold Cup, uh, it was it was a. Uh, we had a little depression form on top of us, and we used to we used to leave the dock with two raincoats on because it was raining so bad. One wouldn't do the trick. He had to put two on. Okay, and uh, we get out to these stakeout spots. In those days, some of the fish, even even in the grass in the back country of the Almorada, where it's notoriously hard to see them. Uh, they all come so slow and easy and everything, just through the frolicking on the surface and everything, and the fins out, and you know, they just swim along and everything. And the damn things ate. I mean, you just get a fly out there, and we all used orange and whites and, and bright looking things. Those tarpon had never seen something like that. They just pounced on it. I mean, you get a you get an orange and yellow fly in front of one of those fish, he'd eat it right now. Just, just if you just got the fly to the school, somebody would eat it. I mean, you you, you knew that you were going to get a hookup. You might not keep him on all the time. He might jump off or break off or whatever, but you were you you had a pretty good chance of of having a hookup. Well, needless to say, in all this pouring down rain and everything, uh, we're standing flip with. Flip was standing on the bow, and I was on the back. In those days, we were still pulling from the from the uh, uh, from the bow. And and Flip used to take and ride on the motor. He would stand. He had a piece of carpet he put on top of the motor and stand on top of the motor for for a tower. And uh, needless to say, there were times in between when the tarpon weren't coming. Well, we I used to just for a. So, Lack of anything to do, so we just started telling stories. I would just make them up. I, I you know, there was no, no thing. Uh, I, I, I remember one I, I told Flip. I said uh, about how the electric motors got uh, uh, developed. That that they came from 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 uh, 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 twin brothers from uh, the Netherlands, and it went into all this, and I named them and everything and everything. And, uh, and uh, actually, they were the first electric motors were made by were developed by the Herschel clock people, uh, and uh, uh, the big names eventually took them over. But but the first electric motors were made by Herschel clock, and so I made up these two fictitious Herschel brothers that developed these electric motors, and I went on and on and on and on, and I told them. Uh, I named them Piter and all the, all, all different kinds of names, and and I would then I would tell stories about them, you know, and all the time flips he'd stand there ready to go for a tarpon, and he'd turn around. He says, "You talk so much, you're like a senator." And ever since that day, he's he, every time I see him, he always calls me senator. So the so Flip Pallet gave you the nickname. Flip senator. Flip Pallet gave me the nickname. The That's senator. awesome. Yeah. 
Well, one of the things I wanted to do too is just hearing all these stories about that time back then and some of these names of people that continually as we interview and talk with different guides, it doesn't matter if they're in their 20s or 30s or 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, have made such an impression on the, the fishing community. I mean, when you were getting into guiding and you were uh, in the peak of, of guiding, what were some of the things that were really important for you as a guide? Well, as, as I understand guiding, in a way I always approached it, that we were entertainment directors. These anglers would come down, they were, in most cases, had to be affluent to go with the, the, the rates that were going, even, even the early rates. <clears throat> they spent a lot of money coming to, the, to, to South Florida in the Keys, motels, transportation, eats, drinks, guide fees, uh, equipment if they brought their own. And first off, they were getting away from whatever the, their business was. Very few of them made... I always made a habit never to talk about somebody. I didn't ask doctor, doctor questions. I didn't ask attorney, attorney questions. They, that was the last thing they wanted to talk about. And uh, there's a story about that too. But anyway, <clears throat> my feeling was there were we were entertainment directors, and as such, I always approached my people said, I, I I want you to go out and have the best damn time you can possibly have. Uh, if the fish come and eat, and I couldn't promise them that everyone was going to eat, but I said at least we're going to try like the devil to get them to eat, and. You're going to have a good time doing it, and I—that's the way I approached all the, all my angler, all my customers. I said, once in a while, and I'll re remember in 33 years that I fished, I had three people that I never wanted to see again. Out of all those people that I had fished with, that fished with me, and everything, there was only three that I never—they didn't know it. They called me up and wanted to go fishing, but I just wasn't available for them. Uh, they, their, their, their attitude was, was, was such that they, they didn't weren't compatible with me, but they didn't know it. They never knew it, and I, and I saw many of them afterwards on the dock, and we had good relations, but they just never got in my boat again. When I, when I sat down with Harry, he was the first person to actually sit down for the podcast, and he's near where we're based out of. And he was talking about tournament fishing, but he was talking about it's true for guiding too. And he says, you know, it's, it's kind of like a big pizza pie. And being a great guide, there's all these different slices, and there's some big slices, and there's little slices. And he was talking about he felt like a lot of times what made good anglers – you know, the difference between good anglers and great anglers or good captains and great captains is a lot of time those small little slices, the small extra things that people would do. I mean, what are some of those things when you look back at when you were guiding that you were really emphatic on doing? And you talked about being an entertainment director, but were there other things too that you were really focused well, on? Well, same time of... In any type of fishing, there's times between fish, and <clears throat> those times have to be uh, addressed in some factor. Uh, I always, uh, and I guess that 
part part of the thing why I came, became this called the senator was the fact that I used to entertain my people, uh, and and I I guess I just had a kind of a rock on tour basis, and I w- I would just make up stories that go along, you know, and uh, I I remember one, and this is getting away from you just a little bit, but a man and his woman I don't remember their names now. Uh, I, a lot of times the angler would come with his wife. She was not an angler, had no interest in angling, but she wanted to go along on the trip. Well, the angler would get up on the bow and be ready to do what he was doing. Well, the poor lady would sit in the chair or on the bench or on the hatch or however, and for hours and hours and hours and with nothing to do. Nothing to see, nothing other other than the flat aura itself. And uh, this this couple, uh, uh, we were pulling up to a, one of the islands in the Lower Keys, not too far from the contents, and uh, it was a uh, frigate bird rookery, and uh, the frigate birds used to live, roost on the mangroves and everything, and you could. You could pull up, oh, I guess within 100 yards of the island before they really got nervous enough to start to fly. So as you pulled up the island, there was no birds flying at at all, except an occasional uh, seagull or something. But uh, when you got up to the island, all of these frigate birds used to launch at the same time. Well, I mean, there was lots of frigate birds. So... I hadn't paid any attention to it. Well, this poor lady was sitting there, bored to death, I'm sure. And uh, as, as we pulled up, I was trying to, it was at one of the tarpon spots, and uh, I hadn't seen any tarpon at the time. Uh, so I, didn't, I hadn't paid any attention to the fact that, well, I knew the frigate birds were going to do this, but. All of a sudden, all these birds launch at the same time, and I, I and I remember, I remember said, "Oh my God!" I said, "Look at the saltwater bats," and I don't know whether you've ever seen frigate birds. I said, "Look at the saltwater bats." I said, "They're vicious things. They'll come down and get in your hair." I said, "If you see any of them falling on you, coming down to you, tell me about it, and I'll hit them with a push pole." Well, this woman turned white as a sheet. And, and her husband was standing on the balance. He knew what happened. And he, he was dying laughing, but he didn't want to turn around and look at her. Well, she never took her eyes off the, the light, the, the sky, the rest of the day and everything. I got to feeling so t- bad about it. And it was just a, just a spur of the moment, I think. I called them saltwater bats. <laughs> and poor thing, she was. But just going out and having fun and... Enjoying the, the people on the boat. It, 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 the most intense that you got were the internments. The, uh, first off, <clears throat> there was a lot involved in it. In those days, there was a certain prestige in winning it. There was a certain prestige in, in being able to even enter it. Uh, and as such, uh, uh, also, before the uh, non-kill uh, uh, tournament started to, to work, uh, there was always a, a tremendous gallery when you come in from fishing. 
if you had a fish or everybody was doing it on, you used to bring the fish in. Now, uh, uh, because the entry fees were uh, pretty steep, uh, you wanted your angler to catch a fish. You wanted him to place as high as he could. And in those days, there was always a Calcutta. Uh, the, the high rollers in the, in the tournament would get together and have placed bets among themselves. Uh, the year that my angler and I won it, uh, my cut was like $2,600 mm-hmm. from the Calcutta alone. That's above my regular guide fees and everything. He won a lot of money. And uh, so that was the, the, really the most intense part of it. Uh, and the fact that tournaments, uh, you had no, no options. You fished. It don't matter what the weather was. Uh, it could be a blowing a hurricane. You fished. And... Uh, uh, my uh, my situation was that if you get caught on the water in a squall or a rainstorm or something like that, lightning or whatever, you put your raincoat on and you hunker down and you ride it out. But if you leave the dock in the rain, you're a damn fool. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I, unless you can run out of it and you see it clear on the other side of it, you're really foolish to leave the dock when it's pouring down rain. Cut first off, you can't see, you can't run. The, the guide can't really navigate as best he, he should be able to. Uh, and there's been some, some uh, accidents along that line. Uh, people uh, pushing the envelope, so to speak. Uh, if, you, if you don't have a tournament you have to fulfill there's no reason no there's no reason in the world to leave the dock in a born down rain uh, you can wait 30 minutes or 40 minutes and take 30 minutes or 40 minutes on the other side if you want to so. that's good advice now, and I'm going to ask the same question kind of Hunter asked but just in a little different way because I always ask this question of when I have somebody on my boat that's fished with a lot of guides or when I meet somebody like yourself that's guide so long and that I always ask them, who's the best guide you've ever known? And what makes them that way? What makes them? Well, the best guide I ever know, and I, I really, truly feel that he is the best guide there ever was, is Steve Huff. I've heard that name over and over again. Uh, Steve Huff, uh, I... I all I can say is that his um, I don't know what it is his attitude his, his thoughts on guiding and how he did it Steve was one of the ones that would leave the dock when it was pouring down rain and he would come back with a fish uh, I remember fishing split parties with him where I wouldn't even get in a boat. Steve would get in a boat, come back with you, have a permit or have a jump two tarp or something like that. Uh, first off, all these anglers were very good anglers, very adept. Uh, 
They were good fly fishermen. They were good spin fishermen. They were. They could see. They could. I remember one of Steve's customers, uh, who became quite elderly, and Steve told him he said one year I used to book him, oh, twenty days a year. He says I can't fish it anymore, and the guy says why? Why? You can't see anymore. He said, you know, he said, he said it's 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 futile for you to spend all this money and and thing to come down and do it, and it's futile for me to try to get you to do it. And uh, that was Steve's attitude. But but he's also a member of the uh, IGFA Hall of Fame. Uh, he's ten years younger than I am. And I think I just heard on the other day that he decided to retire. Uh, uh, he puts out a newsletter every uh, Christmas, his wife does, and uh, his son's still in the Keys and a very good angler. I don't know whether he's Steve's caliber, but he's he's darn close. And uh, Steve and I are good friends. I, I he called me rat. <laughs> let me let me ask you. So, just how we got here in one way was that you know I was with Fish and Wildlife Game and Fish for twenty eight years, uh-huh. and I was a game warden in Homosassa when I first started, and I met Jimmy Long then, and I think he was just starting guiding. Yeah. I guess we probably were in Homosassa at the same time. Oh, we were. We were. When I retired from law enforcement after 33 years and 28 years with the commission, I wanted to guide. It was a, I actually had gotten interested in guiding when I was in Homosassa, but my agency wouldn't let me. So I called maybe five or, you know, I knew the guides. They all kept their cards yeah. close to their chest, but I called five or six people that I knew and said, I'm interested in doing this. Will you, can I ask you some questions? Will you tell me a few things? And Jimmy Long, he actually probably has helped me the most. And he kind of took me under his wing a little bit. And I went down and looked at gear and he looked at my boat before I got it. We talked about how customers, in fact, he mentors me today. We had him and up in uh, Carabell not long ago. And he was actually, we were tying tarpon leaders and, you know, we were, we had everything out and our drills and going through doing the Bimini twist and the Huff Nagel. And, uh, and, and we were talking about the slim beauties and the difference between the two. And he actually showed me a way that you did it a little different. And, and, and so I guess I say all that to say that, that I appreciate you mentoring him. Well, and him in turn mentored me. Yeah. I, 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 like I say, Jimmy and I just hit it off really, really good. Uh, uh, he he was always, he had so much interest in what what we were doing, and 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 he he, he needed to have somebody kind of help him along there a little bit, you know. If he wanted to be a guide, he had to get the equipment, everything ready, and and the rigging and all the peripherals that go with it. And uh, I was happy to show it to him. There there was nothing I I I did that was a secret. I guess the only secret I ever had was, and I told you about it before, was I used to bring all my fly tying gear to Homosassa, 
and we put it on the table. Well, uh, at, at Healing Beaker time, uh, uh, just before we always go to, go to supper that night, uh, the room used to fill up with people. I mean, uh, there would be other guides and, and everything, and some of them were just starting out. Jimmy was might be there sometime. Not too much Jimmy, because he was married and had to go home. But uh, uh, some of the other uh, transient guides that were coming in just for the tarpon season. Well, there sometimes would be seven or eight people in the room. They were all checking out my fly bench and everything and everything. And my friend Steve Huff, I mean, uh, uh, Lee Baker and I were roommates in those days. And uh, Lee's wife uh, used to take vitamins. And uh, she used to uh, used to do it with a hypodermic needle. She would use a, a hypo of vitamins. So uh, I had a, in one, one of my cases, I had a, a big patch of porcupine quills. And like I say, everybody was checking out my flights. I'm going to fix these guys. So I tied a fly, started to tie it, and I put these porcupine quills out the back of it. Okay. And then I put these hypodermic needles down underneath it. And uh, it, I made out like it wasn't quite finished, you know. It was still in a process of being, and uh, I had a little vial of of the uh, uh, vitamins that she was taking. I set that there on the table, and everybody started coming in the room that night. And, look at that fly! Look around that thing. Finally, one of them says, "That was what? What? What were you doing?" I said, "Oh, that's my new secret weapon." And what? 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 I said, "Well." You take these needles, and I said, I've got a customer that comes from South America. And I said, he has access to uh, curare poison. And I said, this is a vial of curare poison. And I said, I take these things, and I inject these porcupine quills with curare. And I said, when the tarpon bites the fly, the curare spits out, and it kills it right away. And I said, you just, grow, just grind the fish right in. Well, nobody said anything. And it's it's fun to hear that because you can tell you had a lot of fun. Uh, oh, oh yeah, and, and, and everybody was everybody was hurting. I I wasn't I wasn't trying to hide anything. So everybody, uh, they didn't. Nobody made any comments about it. Finally, one guy came over. And says, Where can I get some of that? You <laughs> <laughs> But one of the story. things I love about just kind of hearing some of your stories is just the amount of fun you had with it. And there's definitely, you were talking about tournaments and seriousness and, but it seems to me like you, you talked about, Hey, when I have someone on my boat, I'm an entertainer. I want them to have fun. And then I can tell you live that out as well. And just kind of two things as we, as we wrap up, one is, uh, the first question would be what types of things do you want to see passed along to the next generation of guides? And then the second thing would be, on this podcast, who would you want to hear from uh, as we continue to interview? Well, I, 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 I would think it would be behoove you to, if you get a shot at, at Flip, to get get him if you can. Uh, he's he's very active. 
Bob Stearns would be one too. Bob is is uh, he's my age, and uh, Bob's a little st- stove up now. He's he's got arthritis pretty bad, but uh, and I guess Dale Perez would be one of the, one you you might get him. He and Harry are very good friends. They both came in to Tampa. I don't remember exactly when Harry started in the Keys, but I remember he used to fish offshore. He was a, he was one of the mates on one of the boats offshore, and he just got into the to the fly to the uh, flats fishing, <clears throat> kind of as a as a kind of a sideline. And and uh, Dale Dale Perez he he came in with the idea of being a flats guide. And poor Dale, I remember we took him out. Another guy and I took him out in the backcountry out of out of a Marathon to show him some of the tricks. And he had never pulled a boat very much. And and we said, here, get up on the tower and pull it, you know. Well, poor Dale, he pulled around in circles. I mean, you know, he he learned real quick. But it, 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 when he first started out, he was pulling around in circles. And I remember he he had just moved into the Keys. And on the way back, he lost his wallet overboard and all his money and everything, all his moving money and that he had come. Uh, it was it was a bad time, you know. Harry came, Harry and, and uh, Tommy Basiglio, uh, who was uh, uh, another one of the Tampa boys, they all used to fish uh, on, the, on, the, on the bridges there. And uh, Harry got into the boat building business uh, long after he was a guide, he'd been a guide for a long time before he started getting into the, into the boat business. But I, I've, I, Harry and I have had lots of good times together. And uh, I remember when he got married. <laughs> we had such a great time sitting down with him, and it was a lot of fun. And and then when you think about, and this is something I even talked to Harry about, the next generation of guides. What, what the are next the generation of the guides, I, I, now remember now I retired before, and so I've, I've really been out of it quite some time. And uh, I, I don't know exactly what they're having to contend with. I, I know the keys are loading up. Uh, they're loading up with not only uh, permanent guides, but a lot, a lot of of the freshwater guides from the west are coming in, and and hanging out shingles and and fishing the season down here, which is their off season, quite frequently out there. Uh, some are good, some are not so good, and and. Uh, now to take a, a young fella who's never never started, he has to contend with first off the old timers, the part timers, and whatever other new people that are coming in at the same time. Uh, all these people tend to take up space on the flats. So what used to be great flats. Are no longer the great flats. What used to be uh, sure things are not so much sure things. 
uh, the initial cost has got to be very, very high and, and, and taken into consideration. The uh, consensus of the expense of the boats anymore, plus the motors, plus all the peripheral equipment that you need, uh, the licensing that, whereas we had it some to extent down there, it's not near as bad as it is now when I was going through. I had, I had my Coast Guard license and I had my occupational license and that, that I didn't need anything else. Later on, I had to get one for the Everglades Park, but that was just a, a, a catch report. Uh, but from what I understand, the guys now got stacks of stuff that they got a, a licensing for, you know, for for catching ballyhoo. So you know, uh, I would say that it would be tenuous to 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 start out as a young man right now and make a, a successful living with all the expenses that he would have. Where 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 could he fish enough? And with the disbursement of the angler uh, uh, bail. How, how many anglers are out there that are already associated with somebody else? How many new people could he accept, expect to get and, and make enough to pay for his, his, his expenditures? So I, 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 I would like to see him succeed, but I would think it would be very tough for him. Uh, uh, their endeavors would have to be our legion. They, they can be really good guides, really bad guides, and uh, you get the whole spectrum. Uh, when I got out in four, uh, every tarpon point in the Keys, every 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 track, every every. Every place that a tarpon swam by on a, on a migratory passage had a boat there. Everyone, every, not 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 just occasionally, but everyone. Some had three, some had five. Now a young guy starting out has got to contend with that. Some of the guys said, "Well, come on in, you can back me up." But when I, when you got five guys in front of you casting in the school, by the time they get to you, they ain't gonna be eating very much. So his ability to produce is gonna be markedly lower than it was when I started. And when I started, I only had to contend with five people, five or six people. And then some of them, not often, not very often, because we didn't, weren't always, always, all of us always booked. So you just had, you could go anywhere you wanted. Just, if there was a boat there, you had five other places to go. Well, we've loved sitting down with you and getting to hear some of the stories, and we appreciate the time. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and excited just to. Well, I, I wish I could tell you something. <laughs> yeah, come on, tell us. You oh, no, that's, I, I don't know. I tell you. <clears throat> You shared a lot. It's been informative. I think the, you know, just going through my mind sitting here is we've un, 
you know, we we should have scheduled more than one podcast. I mean, there were I had all kind of questions. You know, we want to watch the time and we value your time, but I had questions about the trolling motor switch, and I got all kind of questions for hey, you. But we'll get back to them. Look, come again. I'll, I'll be happy to talk to you anytime you want to. What am I doing? I'm sitting here reading. <laughs> you gonna come up there and go fishing with me? Well, that's I would a love thought. That. That's a thought too. I tell you, I'm I'm getting stove up anymore. I my uh, my arthritis is starting to talk to me. See that damn finger there? Oh yeah. And uh, it just uh, things don't work like they used to. I don't know why that is. I, just, I'm really amazed. You're doing pretty good for 82 now. <laughs> well, thank you. And thank you so much for the time. We'll definitely sit down and dive a little bit more into some. Well, of the details. if you do want to, if you if you if you have any more things you want to talk about, be I'd be happy to take your. I haven't even told you any of my stories. Well, we can't wait. We'll definitely do part two. <laughs> thank you so much for your time today. Okay, thank you. Thanks for listening to The Captain's Collective. The Captain's Collective is also a part of The Waypoint Collective, which features all sorts of great podcasts, television shows, and articles. To find out more, head to outdoors.waypointtv.com. You can check out lots of great content there. We hope you enjoy. Till next time, this is The Captain's Collective. <laughs>